God's word with you this morning. Uh, my name is John Dunning, by the way. I feel like there's a bunch of you I don't know. So if, I, you, if, I, if you find me looking at you funny, it's because I don't know you yet. And I don't know that's my response, but that's where I'm going. So it's good to have you with us this morning, wherever, whatever brings us to you this way. Um, we're going to be turning this morning to giving our attention to Matthew chapter 4, beginning in verse 12. If you could turn there in your Bibles or swipe there or whatever it is that you need to do to get there, I'd love for you to follow along with me. Um, I grew up in a uh, small city. I'd call it a small town, but I think by Kansas standards, it's still bigger. Um, a small city, if you will, in uh, northeastern Wisconsin, about an hour southwest of Green Bay, which means I grew up with Packers football because it's like religion there. And by like religion, I mean it is religion. Um, and one of the stories of lore that we heard growing up um, from our, the, the previous generations is when Coach Lombardi, the, their famed coach in the 60s, one point, I believe he was rather frustrated with the, the performance of the team as of late. And so he grabbed a football and he stood up at the beginning of practice and held it up and said, gentlemen, this is a football. And one of his wisecracking wide receivers from the back of the room said, coach, slow down, you're going way too fast for us. But his point was this, we gotta begin with the fundamentals. If we don't understand the fundamentals, everything else that follows will not work. And if you know anything about Coach Lombardi, he lived and breathed that with every ounce of his being. The fundamentals were what was most important. This morning, as we turn our attention to Matthew chapter 4, this text, the text that we're going to, I want us to consider is one of those texts that sort of has that fundamental kind of status for some of you maybe even, for, for many Christians that is, historically. Because it's the t part of our text is where Jesus begins to call his disciples. And as he begins to call those who would spend the better part of three years with him, and would eventually take his message literally around the world. What he's doing is he's setting a tone for, for us, for his church. And what I want us to consider, the fundamentals I want us to consider this morning is simply this. What is it that our Lord Jesus, our King, to what is he calling us as his people this morning? If you look with me then at Matthew chapter 4, I'll begin in verse uh, 12 and read through verse 22, I believe. Matthew chapter 4, hear now the word of the Lord. Now when he, and he here refers to Jesus, when he heard that John had been arrested, he withdrew into Galilee, and leaving Nazareth, he went and lived in Capernaum by the sea in the territory of Zebulun and Naphtali, so that what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled, the, the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, the way of the sea beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles, the people dwelling in darkness have seen a great light. And for those dwelling in the region of and region and shadow of death, on them a light has dawned. From that time, Jesus began to preach, saying, "Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand." While walking by the Sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers, Simon, who is called Peter, and Andrew, his brother, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And he said to them, "Follow me, and I will make you fishers of men." Immediately they left their nets and followed him. And going on from there, he saw two older brothers, James, and the, James the son of Zebedee and John his brother, in the boat with Zebedee their father, mending their nets. And he called them. Immediately they left the boat and their father and followed him. The grass withers, the flower fades. Would you pray with me one more time as we consider these things? Father in heaven, send out your light and your truth, that they might lead us, that they might take us to the place where you, are, where you are, that through your word we might know you, that we might worship you, as Ryan already prayed for us, that we might be changed. 
Father, we try, we have tried, most of us have tried anything and everything to, to change ourselves, and we find time and again that it fails us and falls short. But you and in your infinite grace and infinite mercy are still committed to changing us. And so we ask that by your spirit, through the work of your son, you would apply these things to our hearts and our lives. In your name, Jesus, we pray. Amen. There's a theme that's a part of many stories that we tell in books and movies and in other ways. And it goes something like this. A once beautiful, thriving place has been laid waste by an evil, corrupt ruler. Will anyone stand against him to restore what is right and good and true in this world? It's the story of the Lion King when Simba runs away and Scar is in charge and the land goes to waste and darkness covers the land. It's the, it's the story... It's the story that's told in The Lord of the Rings in Rohan when Wormtongue is controlling Theoden and the king sits in, in, almost paralyzed in, his, in this bad condition and the land suffers. If you're familiar with the, with the Robin Hood narrative, you know that it's the same thing there. When the king is away on the Crusades and his, I believe it's his brother and the Sheriff of Nottingham are in control, they're, they're, they're corrupt, they're robbing the people, they're doing whatever they can to gain for themselves and to, at the expense of everyone else in the land. And if you remember the Kevin Costner version of this from the 90s, you remember this storyline, is this, that, that Robin and Marion fall in love and eventually, and, and the movie's almost over when, it, when it's almost over, there's a, there's a wedding, but there's a sense in which it's not quite right, it's not quite done. And if you remember, like I do, because I was in high school when this happened, when watching this in the movie theater, you hear this voice from off screen, and it's none other than Sean Connery's voice showing up at the wedding last minute. You don't know that he's even in the movie. He's not on the billing of it. But you hear his voice, that rich Scottish brogue, and all of a sudden you realize King Richard has returned to make all things right. And even the wedding was not right until the king is there to bless it and to grant his blessing to Marion and Robin. And when he does, the movie can end and everything is as it should be. You see, these stories remind us of this, that what's needed is not only that the bad ruler needs to be defeated and cast out, but that the people need their rightful king in place to rule with justice, with mercy, with equality, with compassion, with truth, and with grace. It's what Matthew wants us to know, isn't it? He wants us to know that our king is here. We read in verse 17 what the scholars understand to be a brief summary of Jesus' entirety of his message. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. You see, we know that the kingdom is here because the king is here. That king is the Lord Jesus himself come to make all things right and defeat sin. Of course, it fits with what we know from the Christmas story from Matthew 2 when the wise men show up to Jerusalem having seen this star and they follow it. And they show up and they find who they think is King, King Herod, and they say, where's the king that was born? Where's the one who was born king of the Jews, they ask. And the scriptures tell us that, that Herod and all of Jerusalem were greatly disturbed as a result because their power was indeed threatened by the true king who's come. Now what's interesting in our text, as, as Matthew unfolds this for us, is that as we begin in verse 12, it's not immediately, it's not immediately apparent what's happening, that the king indeed is here. Notice where it begins. Now when he heard that John had been arrested, John was the prophet who had proclaimed that the, the, the Messiah was coming. When, when he had been arrested, Jesus withdrew into Galilee. Leaving Nazareth, he went and lived, we go on to read, in Capernaum by the sea in the territory of Zebulun and Naphtali. Now what you have to understand about this is if Jesus is indeed the king, if he's come to spark a revolution to change the world, Galilee is not the place you would go to start such an endeavor. 
It's not the place you would go to have political influence. Even among Jesus' own people, it was not the place to go. That would have been Jerusalem, where the temple was, where the center of worship and the center of cultural life would have been. Instead, he goes to this insignificant, this pretty, almost as far north as he could go and still be in the land of Israel. That's where he goes. But Matthew says, but I got to tell you something because those words should ring a bell for us. Matthew wants us to know that what, he, what, what, that what we would miss on our own is this. The, these insignificant out-of-the-way place was once mentioned by the prophet Isaiah. It's where he takes us in verses 15 and 16. You see, what he's telling us here, what the prophet is telling us here, is that people of this very region knew the darkness and the shadow of death. They knew corruption and injustice. They saw their own sins and other sins firsthand because they lived it. We know that world too, don't we? Because we live in the shadow of death. We long for injustice to be dealt with. We long for our sinful destruction patterns to be done away with, for suffering to end and for mercy and justice to win out. And the prophet declares that in the midst of such darkness, a light has appeared, a light who is life, a light who is hope. Matthew's trying to tell us that in this out-of-the-way place of little influence, of little importance, that the king has come, that Jesus is the light, that the king has come to chase away the darkness, to defeat our enemy, death. The message that goes along with this announcement that the king is here is very fittingly this call in verse 17, to repent. You see, the king is calling out his people, calling to them to turn away from your sinfulness and all of your self-righteous attempts to fix yourselves and run your lives and return to your king. You see, the word repentance, the, the, the command to repent, the call for God's people to repent is rightfully the, the, the words of a true king. As we read in our, one of our, part of our words of reflection this morning, a theologian, Adolf Schlatter, a German theologian from the early part of the 1900s, wrote this. What is, repentance means this. What is new does not merely supplement the old, it replaces it. The divine word does not praise or strengthen what we are. Rather, it does away with the old and creates something new. This is the work that our King Jesus came to do, even in us. To do, to do away with the old and to create something new because he is the reigning king. We need our king to hold us together, to keep our enemies at bay. This call to repent in connection with the announcement of the presence of the kingdom is Jesus the king exercising his kingdom authority. What Jesus is doing in this moment is beginning to gather his people, to gather his church, even to gather us. And so the question this morning is, what is our call then? If the call, generally speaking, is to repent, and to follow the king, what is, he, what is it that he calls us to? Look with me at verse 18 as we give our attention specifically to verses 18 to 22. Notice where he begins. While walking by the Sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers, Simon, who is called Peter, and Andrew, his brother, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And then jump down to verse 21 and notice what we see there. And going on from there, he saw two other brothers, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, in the boat with Zebedee, their father, Mending their nets. Notice the details that, that Matthew wants to tell us here about what Jesus sees. He sees two men casting a net. Why are they casting a net? Because they're fishermen. This is what fishermen do. Don't overthink it. This is what they do. This is part of their daily life. He finds two others in the boat with their father because they would have carried on the trade as their father would have done. And what are they doing? 
They're mending their nets. Why? Because nets break when you fish with them and they need to be fixed. They need to be mended. Otherwise, you lose more fish than you get. What's happening here is this. Jesus finds and calls these men in the midst of their daily lives. They're doing what they do. You see, Jesus' call calls us where we are. Jesus comes and finds us and speaks to us in the very dailiness of our lives. It's what he's always done. Think of Moses and David from the Old Testament shepherding sheep. Joseph was in jail. Samuel and Isaiah were serving in the place of worship. Gideon was sifting his wheat in hiding. And there are countless others just going about their daily tasks, doing their daily jobs, because that's what life required of them. And they heard the voice of God, and it changed them. And it gave them direction, it gave them shape. Jesus calls us where we are. What this means for us in part is this. Jesus finds us and speaks to us as human beings, living in a very real world with families and jobs and responsibilities. He speaks to us as kids. He speaks to us as parents. He speaks to us as employers and employees. He comes and finds us when we're changing diapers, when we're paying bills, when we're writing reports, when we're balancing monthly statements, when we're teaching classes, when we're going to class. He comes and finds us where we are. This also means this, that Jesus calls to us, knowing full well the world that each of us inhabits. His call isn't waiting for you to figure it out, to clean up your life, to make, everything, to make sure everything is in order before you respond. His call comes and finds us exactly where we are. The, instru- the instruction for us in part is, is not to wait as if to say, I'll get to that religion stuff later in life. I'll get to that when I have time because school and and finding a job and finding a spouse are keeping me way too busy. I need to wait until I have more time. He finds us when we have no time. He finds us when we're stressed out, when we're anxious, when we're afraid, when we're uncertain about the future. Jesus finds us and calls us exactly where we are. But notice what he says next. Again, look uh, look at verse 18, or verse 19, I'm sorry. He says to them, follow me and I will make you fishers of men. Now what's curious about this is, is what, what he's doing is this. When he finds Simon and Andrew, he says, follow me. And in the Greek, there's not actually a verb there. What Jesus is actually saying is something akin to this. He's saying, here, come here. Jesus calls us to be with him. He calls us where, and finds us where we are, and he calls us to be with him. In fact, in Mark chapter three, we read that as, as Mark is recounting for us who the disciples are, he tells us this. He tells us that Jesus called them to himself so that they might be with him. Beloved, this is our call. When Jesus calls us, he calls us to be with him. Christianity starts nowhere else other than that, that Jesus himself calls us to be with him. Now sometime later in his ministry, Jesus will say, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. Again, that word follow there is is the idea of conveying an idea to be with him, to follow after him, to be near him, to know him. Jesus calls us to be with him. When I'm with my kids in a big crowded space, like a sporting event, which has happened multiple times this fall, I want them to be near me. I want them to be no other place than than right here. Why? Because I don't always have time to explain where we're going or why we're going there. I don't have time to explain why we need to find our seats and then we'll get food. I don't have time, and we're often distracted, and there's so many people there, I don't want them to get lost. 
And so I want them right here. I want them nearby. As long as they're close, they can follow me, they can see me, they can hear as I bark out instructions. Now the beauty of this is Jesus doesn't do this out of frustration for us. He's not exasperated with us because we're, we're stupid. He wants us near because he wants us to know him. And that's how we, that's how we do that. Among Jesus' final words that we'll read actually in a moment, he says, I will, he makes the promise to his disciples. He says, I will be with you even always, even unto the end of the age. So Jesus promises to be with us, but his call to us is to be with him. You see, his call is not first to a way of life or to a task or to a duty. His call first and foremost is to him. This is the Christian life, to be with him in worship, in prayer, and in his word. What does that mean for us? Why would we do that? We do that because when we're with him, we can watch him. Now, I understand we don't see him. I don't think I'm crazy. But we watch him through his word as we hear him speak to, to real people in real situations and bring change to their lives and make promises that last and endure even to this day. We watch what he does. We can listen to him. We can ask him questions of our mind and our hearts. He's inviting us to go with him to the places that he goes, to spend time with the people who are also with him so that we might know him. The foundation of who we are as a people, beloved, is we are a people responding to the call of Jesus to be with him, even where we are, wherever we are. But there's this dynamic that happens that we see in the text right away. It's not only that Jesus calls us to be to himself, but he also calls us to each other. Because Jesus is, when Jesus' call goes out, when we hear this call, there are, others, there are always others who are hearing as well. And if we're both responding to the same call, we're going to end up in the same place, aren't we? Look again at verses 20 and 22. Actually, look, for, look back at verse 18. Jesus sees two brothers, Simon, who is called Peter, and Andrew, his brother. He names them his brothers particularly. And we notice in verses 20 and then again in verse 22 that the brothers respond together. He's describing for us that this call to each other is in some ways a call to people who are like us, to people who are close, there's something natural about this that family members, coworkers, and others nearby would hear what we hear, isn't it? It's what we see as the gospel message goes out. It wasn't just that one individual person out of a crowd would hear the gospel and their lives would be changed, but that people together's lives would be changed. Think about Acts 10, when the gospel, when Jesus finds Cornelius and sends Peter there to, to preach the gospel, and his household is changed. Or in Acts 16, verse 11, when Lydia and her household are changed through faith. Or the unnamed jailer again in Acts 16. And time and time again, this is what we see happen. That people are changed, their lives are changed together. It's, there's something natural that makes sense about that because we hear the same things. We're in proximity. But it, but it also includes those who are far from us or maybe far from us. Now, I'm going to go into the realm of speculation. So this is where I'm telling you I'm not Jesus and I'm not the Holy Spirit. So I could be wrong on this. But I find it interesting in our text that he finds Peter and Andrew and he calls them and they follow. And then he finds another group, of, another pair of fishermen with their dad fishing as well, James and John. And what's interesting to me is I can't help but wonder, were they competitors? I don't know what the economy in the first century looked like. But, I, but if nothing else, because they're guys and we do this, we compete, they're trying to figure out who's catching more fish each day, right? That's what we, I mean, not just guys, we, we do that. We measure up to one another. 
And yet they're called to the same Lord, to the same King. Think about the other disciples, because in particular Matthew, the, the one who told, is telling us these stories, he was probably the tax collector for these men. The, men who was, the, the man who was making money and increasing his own wealth at the expense of these two sets of brothers. And Jesus is calling these men to be together. We know that at least one of them, Simon the Zealot, had potentially very strong and potentially very obnoxious political views and wouldn't stop talking about it. But these men are called together, called to the same king. And what's inherent is, that means that they're called to each other. This is hard for us. This is hard. We need to acknowledge this. We, we want often life to be about me and not about us. We want, it to, we, want G, we want Jesus' full attention, so to speak, because we want each other's full attention. We struggle for it to be about us, and yet that's where Jesus invites us and calls us. If, if you're familiar with the show The West Wing, there's, a, there's an episode, a Christmas episode, where the president's oldest daughter and her kids are, are, are coming to the White House to celebrate, to, to do the traditional trappings of the White House Christmas. And the president invites his grandson to light the tree with him. This always gets me emotional, sorry, it's just my age or whatever. Um, anyway, what's happening is this. When it's time to light the, the, the presidential Christmas tree, the grandson is nowhere to be found because he's scared to death. The shy, retiring little boy thought it was gonna be him and his granddad lighting a tree, but it's not. It's him and his granddad and like gobs of politicians and important people and the press and cameras and lights and all this stuff and he freaks out. He wanted it to be just about him, but it's not just about him. Because this is the President of the United States and there's always more people there. What a faint reminder. We want it to be about us. And yet Jesus' call to us is a call to each other. And there's two things I want you to see here in particular. The first is this. There is a place to celebrate deep, lasting friendships within the church. And there's a call here to work hard to preserve those. Please do not take those for granted. Don't take for granted that there are people in this room that get you more than other people. You may naturally gravitate towards some people in this room and not toward others. That's not wrong, that's called friendship. And it is a gift. We don't have to ignore the people that we get along with as, as some way of doing something more holy. Celebrate the, the deep lasting friendships that you have. For those who are close, those who get you, maybe you have similar backgrounds, maybe you're related by blood or by marriage, celebrate what God has given you in those. Do not take those things lightly. But at the same time, let's acknowledge together the second thing I want you to hear, which is this. There are people in this room and people out of this room who would claim the name of Christian who you don't understand. Their lives make no sense to you. You don't understand why they don't homeschool their kids or why they do. You don't understand why they don't drink alcohol or alcoholic beverages or why they do. You don't understand why they would choose to live in Manhattan or why they would not choose to live here. You simply don't get them and they drive you nuts and you don't understand. Don't take those relationships for granted either. Jesus calls us together, beloved. He calls us to one another. Not to win arguments about our way versus their way, but to realize that the kingdom of God is far greater than what we can imagine. And what Jesus is in the business of doing is calling people who are different from us all around the world because we're different from him. I'm pretty sure I don't look like a first century Jewish man. 
And yet Jesus says I'm his. Jesus calls us to each other. We can be honest then when this is difficult, when, it, when we don't want to do this. Because this is what Jesus is doing. And it's the third thing that I want you to see in, in our text this morning. Again, look back at verses, verse 19 to hear again Jesus' call there. And he said to them, follow me and I will make you fishers of men. Notice the second part of Jesus' call. The promises to these fishermen is that instead of drawing in nets, they will be gathering people. It's what they will be doing with this. And there's two things that come in this sentence, very brief sentence. The first is I want you to know that Jesus is committed to changing you. How do I know that? Because he says, I will make you. I will do this in your life. He is committed to changing his people to be something that do, some, do things that do not come naturally. This is his commitment. But the other part of this, I will make you fishers of men, is that Jesus is also committed to changing other people through you. Jesus is committed to changing you, and he's committing to changing other people through you. In fact, he's going to take these fishermen and a few others and literally change the world through them because of these two commitments, to change them and to change the world through them. This is what we hear throughout Scripture. At the end of Matthew, chapter 28, the last final verses of this book, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. In Luke 24, beginning in verse 46, thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead and that repentance and forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations. Beginning from Jerusalem, you are witnesses of these things and behold, I am sending you this prom- sending the promise of my Father upon you. But stay in the city until you are clothed with power from on high. You see, the message that we have in Jesus, this, the gospel message The announcement of the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus is enough for the forgiveness of our sins and to make us right with God and to change us for all of eternity. It does not stop with us. Inherent to it, changing your life is the work of changing others' lives. Jesus Jesus is committed to doing this in you and through you. Yes, even you. Abigail Adams, writing to her husband John sometime before all of the revolution stuff started up in full force, wrote these words to her husband who is known to be a talker. He loved, John Adams loved ideas. He loved having discussions and debates. He lived for such things. And his very wise wife once wrote him these words, you cannot, you cannot be, I know, nor, I wish you to, nor do I wish to see you, an inactive spectator. We have too many high-sounding words and too few actions that correspond with them. Let me read that again. You cannot be, I know, nor do I wish to see you an inactive spectator. We have too many high-sounding words and too few actions that correspond with them. Jesus is committed to you being more than an inactive spectator. He's committed to you doing more than knowing the right answers to the right questions and having the right words and not saying the wrong words. He's committing to you being involved in his work of changing the world because he's calling us as his people not only to one another, not only to himself, but to those who are not yet here, to those who, are, who you do not yet believe. Maybe a few questions are in order for us then, beloved. Where do you find yourself resisting this change in yourself? Are there people, are there places, are there situations that you avoid? Do your preferences outweigh the needs of others? 
Are there ways that, that we make it harder for those who don't yet believe to be with Jesus? Or, in, or even more, are there ways that we make those who do believe difficult to be gathered with those of his church? What about the jokes that we tell? What about the assumptions that we make about politics, about school convictions, about debt, about where we live, about how we live, about what we do for fun and what we do for entertainment, about what we do on one day of the week versus the other days of the week? I'm not saying those things don't matter. Please do not hear me say that. But what I want to challenge us with is simply this. Are we making assumptions based on our biblical convictions that make it difficult for others to even find Jesus or to know him better? Are there ways in which we're making it difficult? That's what I want to challenge us with. Because Jesus is, is, is committed to, to meeting us there and changing us. And it will not always be comfortable. It will not always be fun, but it's his commitment. So what is Jesus' call to you this morning? What is his call to us? He calls us where we are in daily life to be with him. He calls us to each other, to those like us and to those unlike us. He promises that his commitment is to changing us so that through us he might change others. But again, that means change. And for most of us, we don't like change. And change is painful and hard and scary. On the 10th of September, 1813, I believe this is, I can't remember which war it is, sorry, my thoughts escaping me at the moment. But after defeating the British fleet in the Battle of Lake Erie, Oliver Hazard Perry, commander of the American fleet, dispatched, War of 1812, I think is what this is, maybe. Is that right? 1813, whatever, sorry, doesn't matter. Um, he dispatched one of the most famous messages in military history to Major General William Henry Harrison, and it read simply this, Dear General, we have met the enemy and the enemy are our, and they are ours. Two ships, two brigs, one schooner, and one sloop. Yours with great respect and esteem, H. Perry. Now the British at this point was known for not surrendering ever, but they'd conquered them. We have met the enemy and the enemy is ours. But interestingly, in 1970, cartoonist Walt Kelly famously paraphrased this statement as, we have met the enemy and he is us, as for, to make an Earth Day poster. What an interesting, we have met the enemy and the enemy is ours. We have met the enemy and the enemy is us. You see, we're the obstacle to the change even that we long for. We've met the enemy and the enemy is us. Because we are often opposed to change, because we are still convinced that we can change ourselves. And that, that for us to be in control is what we most desperately need. But beloved, there's hope. You see, the church is growing in spite of us. Jesus is still winning. And I'm not saying this to guilt you or shame you. Please don't hear that in my voice. That is not my intention. I actually tell you this, that the church is growing in spite of our being part of the problem, to encourage you. You see, Jesus obtained the church of God with his own blood. In all of our mess, in all of our failures, the church is the organism in the institution that God says he has established to change the world. And if you were to look through the, the rest of the New Testament, most of which are letters written to individuals or churches, what you'll find is this, the writer saying things like this, I thank God every time I remember you because I see the fruit of your faith, because God's grace is at work in your life. Now, the rest of the New Testament is full of correction because we make mistakes and we, we have wrong thinking and we have wrong living all over the place. And yet, even in the midst of this, the message goes forth that God is changing his world through a messed up, messy, dysfunctional organism and institution called the church because it's what he's doing. 
Beloved, the call is to Jesus. The call is to each other and the call is to the world around us. Let's pray. Father, by your grace and by your mercy, you indeed are enough. Father, remind us, please, in your faithfulness and in kindness and in compassion and mercy, but also in truth that we do not have what we need to change the world. We do not have what we need to change ourselves. I can't even change the next hour of my life. And yet by your grace, you are at work. And we ask that you remind us of these things. In your name, Jesus, we pray all of this. Amen.